0: you are listening to intergenerational politics with jill Weinbanks and victor she where we host weekly political discussions that are engaging and relevant to all generations with experts on various issues facing our country today hey this is victor she i'll be an incoming freshman at ucla next year and i'm also the youngest joe biden delegate here in illinois um jill do you want to give our audience a brief introduction about who you are
1: Sure. I'm Jill Wine-Banks. I'm an MSNBC legal analyst and the author of The Watergate Girl. And also, um, today I'm going to mention that I was General Counsel of the Army as well as the Deputy Attorney General of Illinois, in addition to being a federal prosecutor, which gives me some perspective on cities and states and federal agents working together. Um, And I also want to mention today's Jill's pin because it's in honor of John Lewis. Uh, Many of the speakers at his funeral said, voting is the best thing you can do to recognize his legacy and to remember him. And so I'm wearing a pin that says vote, and I hope everyone will.
0: Yeah, for sure. And hopefully all generations Um, But as always, I want to thank you for listening to um, Intergenerational Politics. One of our first guests on the podcast actually was Ellie Honig, who is another CNN legal analyst, and he discussed the state of the Department of Justice with us and how Bill Barr is completely tearing away from the fabric and basic principles of the DOJ. So that was back in June. Now, fast forward to uh, Tuesday, um, July 28th of this week, we saw Bill Barr continuing to undermine the Department of Justice and all of its um, hardworking principled attorneys there. Um, Barr's testimony was just packed in terms of the content of the rhetoric. Um, So to help us unpack his testimony and consequences of his testimony uh, moving forward, we are so excited to be joined by Asha Rangappa, who is another CNN legal analyst, a senior lecturer at Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs, a former uh, FBI special agent, and former associate dean at Yale Law School. And if I may add, um, everyone should also follow Asha on Twitter to see her really insightful analysis. And um, for me, I love enjoying, um, I I love reading um, Asha's savage tweets on the ineptitude (laughs) of Republicans these days. Um, So thank you so much for being here, Asha.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Of
0: course. So we have a lot to talk about, so I'm going to hand it off to Jill to kick off the first half of um, today's episode.
2: Great. So thank you again,
1: Asha, for being here. We really think you are the perfect person to be talking about Bill Barr's testimony this week. And I want to start with um, some of the questions that Democrats had about Barr's actions as Attorney General. And his actions are too numerous, in my opinion, to mention them all. But I think for the purpose of our audience, I want to mention just some of the things that have caused concern about uh, William Barr as Attorney General. And it would start with, I would say, his misleading summary of the Mueller report. Mueller, of course, was appointed before he became Attorney General, but he was the Attorney General when the work was finished. And he summarized it. and redacted it improperly, in my view. He undid the work of many DOJ lawyers and the Mueller prosecutors by uh, changing the sentencing of Stone and by trying to dismiss the case against William uh, against Flynn, something that is now back in the court for an en banc hearing, so maybe he won't get away with it. Um, he returned Michael Cohn to prison because he wouldn't give up his First Amendment rights. Um, He fired US Attorney Berman, saying that he was stepping down, which was a complete misstatement. And we'll get to that in our questions for you, Asha. Um, He has sent federal agents into cities across the United States, uh, very prominently in uh, Portland. And they are soon to be coming to Victor's in my hometown, Chicago. And that has caused a lot of concern. I would say it was all predictable because we saw the audition memo that William Barr wrote in which he said the president has all power, that he is a unitary executive and can do basically anything he wants. Um, So those are just some of the things that we're concerned about. Um, You co-wrote a Just Security article about questions that needed to be asked during his testimony. And so what I would like to start with is based on your assessment of the testimony, were the right questions asked and how damaging was the bar testimony for the Department of Justice and for the administration of justice in
2: the United States? Thanks Jill, yes. Uh, With respect to the hearing, I think that the, there were good questioners but as you mentioned there was just so much ground to cover and i think the challenge that the democrats had was making sure that they covered all the ground they needed to um and i think that they didn't seem to have any kind of coordinated strategy to move systematically from one topic to the next and so you had you know kind of things jumping around so while there were moments that were damaging um to bar that exposed for example the way that he has um favorably treated friends of the president for example um in in ways that you wouldn't treat an ordinary defendant which violates just a core principle of the department of justice which is equal justice under the law um i think it just got some of it just got lost in the barrage you know and, and the going back and forth I would say that there were three big buckets that just needed to be covered and should have been covered very systematically. One is, as you noted, the lies. The <laughs> lies, the lies. You know, just st- as you mentioned, starting from the get-go, uh, mischaracterizing the Mueller report up to the removal of the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, um, which he lied and, he, and his, uh, Jeffrey Berman called his bluff. Um, and it, that's the only reason we know that. The second bucket is the inconsistent application of the law um, which we've seen with friends of the president um, and as you noted that enemies of the president Michael Cohen get punished um, by you know having their first amendment rights being infringed upon. And then the third bucket which I think was really important and got touched on but not kind of hammered home was how Barr is approaching the 2020 election. Um, And this goes to everything from you know, taking a strong stance against foreign election assistance, um, which he was very equivocal about, yes. um, to, you know, uh, do taking these steps in these cities, which, you know, appear to be more to bolster Trump election strategy than from a real law enforcement need, um, you know, to not even being able to answer to get to, you know, something that happened today Um, not being able to answer directly that the president does not have the power to delay the date of the election. Um, And I think that all of these needed to be hammered home. And I think the reason is that Bill Barr is in many ways more dangerous than Donald Trump. Because while Trump can try to do things or say he's going to do things, as the attorney general, Bill Barr has the ability to create legal cover um a veneer of legality and legitimacy to things that Trump does. Um, and I think that we saw that today because by not answering the question, this is by the way, answered in the constitution that Congress sets the date of the election. Um, Trump was able to kind of capitalize on the ambiguity that Barr presented in this hearing to tweet that maybe this is something that he wants to do. Um, and it, it really obscures accountability. So, I strayed a little bit from your question, but I think, you know, there were damaging questions, there were damaging answers, but I think I'm not sure whether your average American person could perceive the enormity of it all, um, watching that hearing all day.
1: So first, I want to say I agree with everything you've said, and I love when you said equivocal, because You know, that's as good a way of saying that he was just totally avoiding answering obvious questions. Uh, The Constitution says that the president's term ends on January 20th. So whether there's an election or not, he's not the president on January 20th. So we, you know, it's just, there are so many things to unpack there. But um, (laughs) I want to pursue a little bit based on what you're saying. Um, I have the impression, and I'm wondering if you agree with this, that the way questions are asked in congressional hearings is not effective. So that you get the Democrats ask for five minutes of a question, and then the Republicans get five minutes, then the Democrats get five minutes, and it goes back and forth with five minutes not being long enough to set a predicate, ask the question, get an answer, and do any follow-up, even if you were a skilled questioner, five minutes isn't enough. But then when you go from person one to person two to person three, it's not even back to person one, there's no follow-up on the question. And I, I, I think what we saw during the impeachment, when the staff were assigned long periods of time to do the questioning, and the follow-up was done by members of Congress, when the trial happened, the video clips of Q&A were all of Dan Goldman asking the questions because he had the time to ask them, hear an answer, and do a follow up. So do you think that this is something that needs to be changed or do you think that method works?
2: Well, I think that I agree with you. I think it needs to be changed in light of the dynamic where we are now with these kinds of witnesses. When Congress is now conducting oversight Um, what we have, Jill, is a dynamic where you have a hostile witness. I mean, you are a prosecutor. You understand this. So you're not having, you know, the executive branch come in, um, you know, to some degree in a cooperative way. Maybe there's things that they're going to shield. But overall, there's not this spirit of, you know, we're here in this common enterprise where you have the authority to have oversight and I'm here to, to inform you about what's going on. We have a very, these committees are polarized, I mean, to the extent where now even the intelligence committees, for example, which have, you know, I think historically been quite bipartisan, Mm -hmm. they have become polarized. And you have the executive branch basically taking the stonewalling uh, tactic that if you can even get this person in, I mean, this is like an amazing thing. I I don't, I think we thought it was a 50-50 whether Bill Barr was even going to show up probably, you know, on Tuesday. I'm kind of surprised he did. (laughs) So as, as you know from being a prosecutor, if you have a hostile witness, then yes, you're basically in cross-examination mode for your entire time of questioning, which means that, yes, you need to build, you need to lay the groundwork for what this person has said, what they've been on the record for, what did they do, and then use that to, you know, ask leading questions to basically corner them in and nail down Um, their position or their, Mm -hmm. their, what their statement is under oath. Um, You know, as a former FBI agent, even doing an interrogation, I couldn't have done, you know, question people for five minutes and, you know, had somebody else come. I mean, you need, you need a long stretch of time. So I do agree with you that that needs to uh, change given the dynamic that we're in. Now, if we, are able to maybe change the culture, hopefully, after this election um, and go back to things where um, assertions of privilege, for example, are worked out through negotiation and compromise and things like that, maybe, you know, maybe this can work. I am not optimistic that we're gonna return to that kind of dynamic anytime soon. I'm I'm
1: hopeful and I have to say, um, you know, I'm, from the era when there was bipartisan cooperation. During Watergate, Republicans participated, they voted to impeach, they voted for the Articles of Impeachment, and it was Republicans who went to the President and said, President Nixon, if you do not resign, you, you will be convicted. And that's what led to his next day announcing that he was resigning. So I do remember that there could be bipartisanship. And I do have hope that um, President Biden will bring back the kind of cooperation that actually leads to accomplishing many good things in politics. Um, But, so let's get back to Barr and talking about uh, one of the subjects that I was troubled by was his talking about how he so fairly handles criminal matters. Um, And of course, our listeners should know that Charging matters for a federal prosecutor and for a state prosecutor are based on facts and law. And you don't indict someone unless you have really significant evidence that you are sure that a jury will accept as beyond reasonable doubt, proof of guilt. And you don't dismiss cases just because you like the person who got charged. So there were a lot of questions about commuting Stone's sentence and um, about the lowering of his sentence before it got commuted and the dismissal of the case against Flynn after he pled guilty and uh, was questioned very thoroughly by the judge and admitted it all. Um, And it seemed like these decisions were done for political reasons, that they weren't done to have one system of justice, that it was a matter of if you have a personal or political connection to the president, you get one form of justice. And um, yet, Barr very clearly was saying no, that he handled all criminal matters without any political motivation. Do you think that the questioning showed differently? Or do you think that he was able to make some kind of credible case for that?
2: I I think he was actually pretty effectively questioned on that, um, again, by, by different a questioner, so I'm not sure it, you know, had the, the full impact. But for example, Representative Swalwell, I thought really went yeah. for it, um, yeah. and really hammered home, um, you know, particularly asking him if he could name any other case yeah. where he had stepped in. Um, because the, the, for example, with Roger Stone, his justification was, you know, I just don't think it's fair for, you know, a 67 year old man to go to jail for seven to nine years. Well, okay, then why don't we do an audit of all the 67-year-old defendants um, in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office where their sentence has actually been reviewed by Bill Barr. I'm guessing it's zero. Um, And I think this is why he couldn't um, say anything. You know, I think the other, what? well, I guess I would say this maybe could not have come out in questioning, but I just want to drive home how dangerous his actions are in both the Stone and Flynn case. So, You know, if the president wants to placate or reward these people who have been charged in federal court, there's evidence against them, Um, Stone was convicted by a jury, Flynn pleaded guilty, his option, if it were only left to him, would be to grant a pardon. Now he Mm -hmm. did commute Stone's sentence. He exercised that option. Um, And with Flynn, he could pardon him. That is a constitutional prerogative but it's also an inherently political act, and the president has to then bear the consequences politically of doing that. And to some degree, he's he's you know gotten a lot of blowback from uh, the Stone commutation. When Barr does this through these legal mechanisms, when he tries to say that no, actually the sentence was you know as a matter of law unfair, or actually this prosecution against Flynn was as a matter of law. Um, you know, had no basis and should never have been brought, he's, he is not only giving a veneer of legality to, you know, this favorable treatment and to, you know, getting these friends of the president off the hook, he's obscuring the accountability where it ought to lie. Because now we're looking at Bill Barr, we're tra- you know, but, but basically he's executing what the president wants. It's just that the president isn't going to be the one who pays the price for it. Um, and that's incredibly dangerous to the rule of law um, when you when you are are engaging in a smoke and mirrors using the law to do things that are incredibly corrupt um, and perhaps even illegal. So, for example, in the Roger Stone commutation, there does seem to be a suggestion by the president's own tweets and remarks that Stone has made that he actually withheld, uh, you know. Um, information that could have implicated the president because he was promised that he wouldn't go to jail and, and that the president followed through on that. That is a corrupt act. Um, and, you know, when, when Barr inserts himself into this, um, it, it obscures what is really going on.
1: That is such a great explanation of the danger of what's happening. And it, it leads into um, my next question, which is again some of the things that Barr is doing. In his testimony, he said, and I'm going to quote him: "President Trump has never asked me, directed me, pressured me to do anything in a criminal case." So um, I listened to that and I went, "Boy, that is so carefully crafted." What, what were the verbs? Can you repeat them? He, he said that that President Trump has never asked me directed me, pressured me to do anything in a criminal case. And I listened to that and what I heard was, that's because he sends out public tweets and makes public statements that let me know exactly what he wants me to do. So he doesn't have to ask me, I'm just his lawyer and I do what I know he wants done. And so to me, it was one of those things that, um, I, I remember having a perjury case where the issue became whether it was uh, literally true but deliberately misleading. And there's a Supreme Court case, Bronston, that says, if it's literally true, it's not perjury, even though it was intended to and did mislead and divert attention from the questioner. So to Mm -hmm. me, It might have been literally true that he never asked Barr, that Trump never asked Barr or told him what to do, because Barr automatically knew from all of the public statements of the president what he needed to do, and he did that. So it wouldn't be perjury, that particular statement, that he was never asked to do it, but it completely misleads the public. I believe that there's no way that Barr isn't doing the bidding, as you've just said, that he's doing the bidding of the president. Uh, so uh, do you have any thoughts on that?
2: Well, it's hard to escape that conclusion. So, you know, with, for example, the the hit bar intervening to um, ask for a lower sentence for Stone, this is, you know, several months ago before the commutation, Trump had tweeted before that, you know, about how unfair, you know, Stone's sentence was going to be. And then he tweeted after it and said, you know, this is great. This is exactly what should have happened. And so, you know, as you know, Jill, one of the primary pillars of the rule of law is people have to perceive that the law is fair. Um, how people perceive it is, is everything. Um, you know, legitimacy is based on people believing that law is being um, applied fairly. And when that happens, you know, when the president tweets something and, oh, Bill Barr just happens to do exactly what the president wanted, even if there's no direct communication. I think the logical conclusion is that he is acting on the president's wishes. When it happens repeatedly, as as you know, it becomes a pattern. Um, The other thing that we know about Donald Trump specifically We know this from his former personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, who testified in front of Congress, where he testified very explicitly that Trump doesn't really have to say anything, that the people around him know what he means, that he speaks in code, he's able to give signals for what he wants without stating it directly. And I know that many prosecutors who had worked organized crime said, that's how a mob boss works. You know, a mob boss isn't going to say, you know, go kill Vinny um, while he's getting into his car. I mean, they're not going to say that. They're going to say it, you know, you know, it would be nice if, you know, they didn't show up at my daughter's wedding or whatever, right? And guess what? Vinny's not going to show up at the daughter's wedding. Um, So I think that we know that it's also a pattern of Trump that he's not, he's not, in, in his life, he doesn't give direct orders to do things, that right. like he expects the people around him to show their loyalty by understanding what he wants and delivering on it. And that was from his former personal lawyer. So I think that actually carries a lot of weight in how um, some of the dynamics are probably going uh, with the people around him now.
1: So who would have ever thought that my being a organized crime prosecutor would be relevant to commenting on the president of the United States, but you are right, it clearly is. That may be my best background for talking about Donald Trump. Um, But sort of also following up on this kind of answer and whether it's true or false, um, you have Barr was answering a question about the departure of U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, um, Berman. And he said-
0: Yeah. And do you testify today that that statement was true At the time, the department issued it. Uh, He he may not have known it, Uh, it but he was stepping down. He may not have known that he was (laughs) stepping down. That's your testimony today? He was being removed. Mr. Attorney General, The statement did not say that he was being removed. It did not say that he was being fired. It said Uh, that he was stepping down. Apparently, your testimony today is that that was, in fact, accurate. When Mr. Berman has testified under oath to this
1: committee that it, in fact, was not. So you have another example of something that, uh, in that case, I think was perjury, as opposed to saying he never told me to do it, which could be true, saying that it's true that I said he was stepping down, and that was a true statement, when he then backs off and says, well, no, he didn't know he was stepping down, he was getting fired. So this creates a really bad impression, it seems to me, um, about Department of Justice, what kind of role model is the Attorney General? Um, it, It seems like everything he does is political support for Trump, that he's acting as Trump's lawyer, not the people's lawyer. And so I'd like to hear what you think about that and whether that kind of conduct warrants disbarring Barr.
2: I think it absolutely does. The Attorney General is the people's attorney. His client is the United States of America, uh, the people of the United States uh, and, and Jill, I know you walked into courtrooms representing the people of the United States when I was an FBI agent, I was protect, I was investigating cases on behalf of the people of the United States right and you know I think the closest analog that lawyers have to, the doctor's you know, oath of do no harm, kind of this fundamental thing is as a lawyer, you have an ethical and professional obligation to zealously defend your client and your client's interests to the fullest extent of the law and to the best of your ability. And what we see is consistently that what is in the interest of the people of the United States, the interests of justice is often at odds with what is in the president's interest. And yet Barr goes to what is in the president's interest. I'm trying to think of any situation, anything that he's done since he's been, um, you know, AG that that ha- has been at odds with something that Trump has wanted. Um, and I'm not talking about a policy matter. I'm talking about prosecutions where he's he's been more aggressive and said, no, this is what has to be done in this case. Um, so you know, and actually even on policy matters. I mean, he is uh, not going to defend the Affordable Care Act, for example. And my understanding is that it is the policy of the Department of Justice that if there is a statute on the books that has, you know, a defensible position that, that you are obligated to argue that. And he's abandoning that as well. So um, he's, he's pursuing the president's policy and personal agenda. Uh, and that violates his professional ethics as a lawyer in that position. And I think that alone, um, quite apart from the abuses of power that he's engaged in 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 individual circumstances, warrant disbarment.
1: Thank you. I I agree with that. And I have a million more questions, but I'm going to settle for just one last one before I turn Mm -hmm. it over to Victor. Um, And that sort of relates to what you were saying, which is, Department of Justice policy is being ignored. And one area where I'm particularly concerned is the general policy that they will do nothing to interfere or disrupt an election. I know during the Watergate uh, era, Mm. there came a time when there was a case to be brought, but it was getting very close to the election. And the decision was made that it would not no indictment would be returned until after the election so that it wouldn't interfere. Now you have the opposite having happened in the last election where Comey did something that definitely changed a lot of votes against Hillary Clinton. And now you have Barr who in his testimony was really evasive, uh, I would say at best, uh, about whether he would follow the Department of Justice policy to do nothing that would disrupt the election. And I'm worried about this work that he is doing with Durham, the US Attorney Durham. And whether they are in October, when it will be too late to get the facts all out, will make accusations against, I don't know, uh, Vice President Biden, Vice President Biden's son. I, I'm not mm-hmm. exactly sure you know, what horrible thing they might be contemplating. but. Uh, I'm just wondering whether you agree that there might be an October surprise that could be done solely for the purpose of affecting the outcome of the election.
2: Absolutely. I think that he he was not willing to state under oath that he would commit to not releasing the results of the Durham investigation um, until after the election. And that investigation, is the investigation into the investigators um, of the investigation into Russian election interference. Um, So it's essentially, and and this is also coming after the inspector general, which is an independent investigator, has already kind of audited this whole thing. So it's not, I mean, Joe, I don't know about you. It's not clear to me what basis or authority this is all happening under, Um, what predicate there is for this to happen when when the attorney general can just Pick some rando, you know, U.S. attorney to say go investigate this. It's very strange to me. So that and that piece has not been kind of hammered home, I don't think. Um, but you know, there it's also of a piece that his purpose is to discredit, uh, you know, not only smear the Bidens. I, I suspect that that will be a part of it, um, but also to discredit the entire idea that Russia interfered or that Trump benefited from Russian interference in 2016. And this is kind of in of the bigger picture of systematically going and undoing the special counsel's, um, you know, results of the investigation, right. these prosecutions. We're going to, you know, get rid of. We're going to say that there, this was never should have been investigated in the first place. And alarmingly, one of the other things that he refused to say outright, at least immediately and initially, was when he was asked the question is it ever appropriate for a presidential campaign to receive uh, election assistance from a foreign government or for, from a foreign country, his, he paused for a long time and he said, it depends what kind of assistance. And then I think he thought better of it because I'm, he, You know, maybe he was working in his head on how he was going to defend that. Because when he was asked it a second time, he said, no, it, it wouldn't be appropriate. Um, but that was very striking. So taken together, I think that absolutely, he is ready to be the propaganda arm uh, yeah. for the president as well um, in the days leading up to the election. Mm-hmm. I think we can expect that.
1: I'm sorry to hear that, but hopefully something more um, promising will come out of Victor's line of questioning. <laughs>
0: <Hopefully>. <laughs> I know
1: this is
2: kind of depressing. <laughs>
0: Um, yeah, thanks, Phil. But um, I kind of want to get started like um, with my questioning on the issue kind of born out of the horrific killing of George Floyd, and that is the protesting that's occurring throughout the country for racial justice. And um, what we've seen since the protests began is this administration and attorney general um, that isn't afraid to use federal troops to disrupt completely peaceful demonstrators. Um, you have Lafayette Square, you also have Portland. Um, now, fortunately for Portland, there seems to be this agreement made between um, Oregon's governor as well as the federal government to have troops leave Portland, but there may still be Um, a presence of troops protecting federal buildings. But um, on that note of federal troops in cities across America, um, I wanna bring in Representative Pramila Jayapal's um, amazing questioning when she pointed out how um, the Attorney General cleared a completely peaceful protest out of Lafayette Square, but didn't bother to interfere with protesters in Michigan's Capitol building carrying guns and calling for the death of um, the Michigan governor. So I guess first, what authority does the Attorney General have to disrupt a peaceful protest by using tear gas and rubber bullets? And second, Is there a double standard here in terms of um, the decisions being made by the attorney general?
2: So to answer your first question, and Jill, you may have more of like kind of the the very the statutory authorities under which Barr was deploying federal agents. I mean, there's like a kind of a complex patchwork in DC is a little different than a state. even so, I think that the Lafayette Square piece was really odd. Um, typically, the the Attorney General is not the giving direct orders to you know even the law enforcement who are within his branch. I mean, he's not trained in crowd control. You know, um, he's not an actual general, though he seems that he seems to believe that he is. In addition, some of those um, federal agents that were in Lafayette Square didn't actually fall under the Department of Justice. So for example, Park Police, I believe, is under the Department of the Interior. So it's was very clear, unclear like what the lines of authority were and who was giving the orders. And I think we're still kind of trying to figure that out. The Inspector General is actually, I think, um, un- annoying that. From a law enforcement perspective, what I would say is, you know, when people are engaged in lawful, peaceful assembly, they're allowed to be there, they are not posing any threat, and there is no emergency, there's no imminent threat that, you know, you need to get those people out. I I can't see how there is a justification for any, you know, escalation in the use of force. Um, You know, they can, you know, push back the perimeter, they can, you know, which, you know, you just heard the crowd and and do the things that I think crowd control do, but there is in any kind of use of force situation, you have to have a certain, you know, threshold of threat before you are legally justified in escalating the response. And basically what we're seeing, you know, in the way that Barr is approaching this is, we're gonna escalate the response to basically get this to just go away. Um, And so, you know, that, that is what's problematic. Now, the justification for the cities is based on a different hook. This is that um, they are protecting federal property and that there's federal jurisdiction there for agents to go and protect federal property. I think the problem is, is that at least from the videos I've seen, it seems that many of these agents are not strictly near the federal property. They seem to be kind of roaming the streets. And, you know, and so this general federal police power um, doesn't exist. I mean, I think there's, you know, ways for state and local governments to request federal assistance and and work together. But this is a very odd situation where against the wishes of the governor uh, and, you know, um, the state and local governments that uh, Trump is sending this in. And I think that, again, I hate to say it, it's just awful to think about, but I think that this is also just a part of the propaganda, right? Because, you know, it helps create the visuals um, of kind of this, you know, uh, war in these cities and particularly Democrat cities um, that, you know, mark my words, I think we're gonna see some of those images in his campaign ads um, as we get closer to the election. So I, I am... I am very skeptical that there is actually a a true uh, threat that could not be handled by you know state and local police the national guard if they if the state needed um, additional you know force to to control say vandals and things like that I mean, Jill, I'm curious what you think mm-hmm.
1: well i I agree with you I think it's completely inappropriate i I want to say because i the reason I mentioned that I have uh, state prosecution experience, as well as federal, is that I see the benefit of joint task forces. And there are certain times when federal um, tools are more helpful, either because the law, for example, on drug trafficking or on gun trafficking, is much more strict under the federal rules, and you can get a much stiffer sentence so that you might want to prosecute under federal law rather than state law, and that when they work together under an agreement that is where the state wants the help, it can be very valuable, but it isn't valuable when they are imposed, and as you noted, there have been people picked up on the street nowhere near the federal building in Portland. And so they have an absolute right to defend the federal building against any attack. And my understanding, Victor and I, had the privilege of interviewing two people who are one from the Democratic Party in Portland, the other from the um, county commission. She was a county commissioner uh, yesterday and talked about the fact that the federal building is often the focus of protests and there is always graffiti on the federal building. This is not unusual.
2: Interesting.
1: Uh, Yeah, because frankly, I said, why don't they just move the location of the protest to for example, police headquarters, so that there is no possible claim of federal jurisdiction that could even be remotely possible. Um, And we're gonna try to get an answer from some of the organizers of the protest itself to find out if, if that's something they've considered, although now that may be a moot question because there is some agreement that the federal agents will protect the federal building but will not roam beyond the federal building. And hopefully the, our mayor, uh, Lori Lightfoot, has agreed that having some federal agents here could be helpful in combating gun violence in our city, but having nothing to do with any peaceful protest. They would not be part of it. And I would certainly advise any Chicago organizers to headquarter the protest at City Hall or some other location not at the federal building, because I don't want the federal agents. And and we had agents here who had no training in crowd control. These were not people who were, prop- and they weren't dressed appropriately. They were dressed in military uniforms. They That's were right. camouflaged. And it's not clear to me, someone said that they actually did have badges identifying the agency they came from, just not their names. From what I could see, there was nothing that identified the agency so you know if you're an FBI agent I want to know that you're the FBI if you're from Homeland Security I want to know that if you're from Border Patrol I want to know that I also want to know your name so that I can take action legally against any improper action so that that's um, that's my feeling yeah all, all of those
2: things are exactly right and I, I think so one minor point then a bigger point. Um, on the point where the the agents or the troops were kind of wandering through the city. That was something that Barr lied about. I mean, he claimed in questioning that they were behind barricades at the federal building. And I, I was just watching him say that. And I said, that's patently not true. Like they, we've seen them. <laughs> They're not just guarding the federal building, you know? Um, uh, but again, I didn't, as you said earlier, Jill, this nobody followed up, nobody had, you right. know, what would have been great would be a map of Portland showing where the federal property was and where where there have been agents and yes. why are they mm-hmm. so far away?
1: Where have um, there been arrests? Where was the naked woman who got fired on? Um, I mean, she was clearly, she had her hands up and she was naked. There was clearly, she had no armament and yet they fired at her. So
2: um, now I think that there is some, jurisdiction for DHS within 100 miles of the border. And I don't know if that is also part of it, because I believe Portland Falls the, and you know obviously the coastline is a is border. So um, it, I think part of the issue here, Victor, is that not, there has not been transparency in, we are going in under this authority. Here are the agencies whose agents are being deployed for this specific purpose, and here is the scope of what they are there to do. Um, As Jill said, they're not identified. They're not easily identifiable. They don't look like law enforcement. They look like military. They look like they're in a war zone, and, you know, I'm sorry, like, there is violence there, and there's rioting, but, you know, it's, it's not Afghanistan. Like this is graffiti and people, you know, doing things that, you know, violent people do and should be arrested for and charged with, but it's ordinary crime, it's not Mm -hmm. terrorism. Um, And to your point, Jill, you know, when I was an FBI agent, we were trained that when we knock on the door or ask to talk to someone, the first thing we had to do was show our credentials and identify ourselves as FBI. People can look at our credentials, they can take our name, um, I had people on occasion verify who I was by calling the FBI n- like main number and saying this person is here. Is this person an agent, here's the number and verifying it, which they are entitled to do because what you don't want to happen, especially in a confrontational situation where someone is, where the law enforcement is armed, you know, as a citizen, if you are being told to, get back, to get on the ground, to put your hands up or whatever, you know, you have to comply with law enforcement, but that means that law enforcement has an obligation to clearly identify themselves and who they are and what authority they are acting under. Otherwise, you might say, well, who the hell are you? How do I know you're not some, you know, wacko, you know, right wing KKK guy in military gear, which by the way, we've seen people dress like that at protests. And you say screw you and you start walking away or you walk past them and then they shoot you. This is, we don't want to escalate the situation. And that is what I think is very problematic here is that nothing that I've seen suggests that the intention here is to protect and then also de-escalate and keep, you know, violence and and bring it down. It seems to be there to exacerbate the situation, to outrage people and to basically inflame people's passions, and, you know, even encourage these kinds of confrontations where something will go very bad. Um, And that, to me, is incredibly irresponsible. I think that is another basis on which Bill Barr could be impeached as well.
0: Yeah, and it seems like so much of this, like you had said, like the intention isn't clear, but now um, it seems to be benefiting Trump's re-election campaign with law and order. And um, it's just really ridiculous. Shocking. With Yeah, shocking, yes. Um, but now we want to kind of touch upon the next issue, which is one of the buckets that you had mentioned, and that's like election security. So um, we all know, we well knew how in 2016, the US election fell vulnerable to forces like Russia hacking into our internal election systems. And then um, on Tuesday, um, Bill Barr said that we should, you know, assume that Russia will interfere with our election system again in 2020. And then more recently, FBI Director Chris Ray warned about China's capability to interfere in our elections in 2020. So um, you've worked a lot in the FBI and just drawing from your experience there as well as in national security, how prepared is our election infrastructure to deal with another hack? And I guess, what power, if any, does Bill Barr have um, to limit other countries from interfering um, in our election?
2: So to answer your first question, I would say we are woefully underprepared. Now, remember that our election infrastructure is decentralized. It's happening at at the state level. So it's really up to states to make sure that their election infrastructure is, you know, working, is up to date, is, you know, um, not vulnerable to outside actors. Um, they can request assistance from the Department of Homeland Security to come in and, and look, but uh, the federal government doesn't have any authority to just go in and do it. Which is, you know, here we are, ironic. We're, like, they can federal government can like clearly send in federal troops, but they can't fix the infrastructure uh, without permission from from the state. Um, so that is very alarming, um, and I think that in some states, you know. They have no actually vested interest in fixing it um, because in some states there are many forces that want to make it harder for people to vote. Um, so you know, making you know secure elections with free and fair voting isn't really everybody's priority, sadly enough. Um, and so I think that that is a, a huge weakness. We also have the issue, so I would say election interference can happen in three ways. One is what you just said, hacking intrusion into actual voting systems, um, where, and we know that Russia was able to do this. The intelligence community said they didn't change any votes. I think that they might choose to cross that line this time. Um, Why not? What do they have to lose? Um, The second bucket is hacking into personal information um, of people running. And then weaponizing that information as a way to discredit and embarrass these people, which is what they did with Hillary Clinton and John Podesta and the DNC and all of this stuff, which is just changing the narrative and essentially, you know, controlling the media cycle so that someone gets, you know, much more negative attention than another person. And then the third way is through social media influence, and this is, you know, people posing as Americans on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, and and basically. Um, psychologically manipulating, uh, you know, by, by putting, you know, false information out there by, you know, creating outrageous means to kind of manufacture that outrage again and associate a particular candidate with, you know, bad things so that, you know, the, the basically the undecided voter might be nudged in one direction, or to create apathy among voters so that they don't vote at all. They're, this can also be used to suppress voting, like just don't even bother showing up. So um, we are vulnerable in all three. Um, and then what was the second part of your question?
0: Um, so like, I guess what authority does, I guess the attorney general have to limit other countries from interfering?
2: So, you know, I would say that that is more of a foreign policy issue. I don't know that like Bill Barr can when you know, something happens, he can then um, investigate and charge people if they violated, you know, the law, um, which is what the the Russia investigation was about. And we ended, and Mueller ended up charging um, 13 Russian nationals, three companies, you know, 12 GRU, Russian military officers, all of this for for election interference. So So, but that's kind of a reactive measure. The proactive measure has to be taken by the president. Which means he has to take a forceful step with President Vladimir Putin, you know, or with other foreign actors that are engaging in this kind of thing. Um, and right now, you know, Trump actually thinks that election interference is a hoax. So I, I don't think he's actually, you know, uh, taken any action against this. And with Russia in particular, um, you know, we know that he hasn't even asked Vladimir Putin about the bounties that Russia has placed on our own soldiers, you know, which is really giving Putin the green light to do what he needs to do, um, I suspect, because Trump expects that then he will be able to benefit from Russia's electoral interference um, in this cycle. I think this is also why he's so afraid of mail-in voting, because with regard to election infrastructure, voting by mail, paper ballots, are probably the best way to um, prevent. You can't yeah. hack uh, you know, the paper vote. Um, They're they're quite secure. And so I think that if a lot of people vote by mail, um, it actually makes it harder uh, to, for at least for the the vote tabulation piece to be significantly Mm -hmm. affected. Um, And I think the fact that Trump is really, he hates mail-in voting is a clue, is what we would call the FBI a clue, um, Mm -hmm. that maybe he also is not so keen on Mm -hmm. everybody voting and their votes being counted.
0: Yeah, Yeah. so I mean, in that same vein, like we want to touch upon, what Barr and Trump can do um, or may do to rig the election and kind of reject the results, so um, like you'd said, we known for a while that Donald Trump believes vote by mail is a fraud, you know, despite him also voting by mail um, on Tuesday, bill Barr echoed those same sentiments without any evidence to support his assertion that mail in ballots you know, are fraudulent um, and then we had representative J- uh, Jayapal, who was you know the star of really the um, one of the stars of the um, hearing, and she quoted statistics to kind of prove the opposite and I think you know out there there's one um, comprehensive study that shows from like 2000 to like 2012 there were like less than 500 prosecutions of absentee ballot fraud um, but then also strikingly um, you know like you said earlier on Bill Barr wouldn't say you know that help from foreign countries is prohibited um, although it clearly is and um, Barr wouldn't provide any sufficient answer as to whether um, the president can move the date of the election and then we have Trump suggesting um, today that you know uh, they can move the, d- day of the election if people can't vote I think like, properly securely and safely so Um, in the short term, how might Barr work with Trump to suppress the vote before the election day and then um, skew the results to benefit them? And then in the long term, what might do, what might Barr do um, after the election day if, say, Trump loses by a thin margin?
2: Yeah, I think in terms of mail-in voting, what he can do before is really the propaganda piece. I mean, the more that Barr goes out and says that, like, he's validating the president, Um, just like he's validating the president when he refuses to answer about the the date being moved. I will, I'll add one more thing that Barr can do. Um, I I said that, you know, his role is really reactive, but he can do a very sneaky thing where he can create, um, so within the Department of Justice, there's something called the Office of Legal Counsel. So there are legal questions that are given. Now, the Office of Legal Counsel is, you know, there to provide legal opinions on particular, you know, whether it's policy or particular legal questions that may impact, um, you know, the White House, the executive branch, the presidency. Um, You you know, one of the sad things I think we've seen, and this is pre-Trump, is that the Office of Legal Counsel has sort of become, you know, an office that is used to justify Particular, you know, actions. We saw this in the George W. Bush administration, where the Office of Legal Counsel created the legal justification for the use of torture, um, which was very legally unsound. Um, but basically, it provided this legal cover. You know, I think I worry that Barr could, you know, in the background, have a legal opinion that you know certain kinds of foreign assistance don't really violate our campaign finance laws, and that then becomes you know, the position of the Department of Justice for why they don't investigate when, you know, this kind of assistance is coming in. Um, In in a sense, like I said before, he can kind of create these legal loopholes and almost do it in secret, because, Jill, maybe you can answer. I mean, there's no um, obligation for him to make these kinds of legal opinions public, right? Uh, I guess unless Congress asks for it.
1: You're scaring me because I hadn't thought of that as something he might do. We already have the Office of Legal Counsel opinion that was the reason why a president can't get indicted, a legal opinion that I have believed since 1973 during Watergate was, and there was the opinion wasn't then, but I have believed since then that the president can be indicted, a sitting president can. There is nothing in the Constitution that says he can't. It does say there's a way to remove him from office through impeachment, but that doesn't mean that he's home free on criminal cases. Um, And we've had enough Supreme Court decisions that say, for example, that you can be charged and tried in a civil case. Well, if Bill Clinton could be tried in a civil case, then isn't a criminal one much more important? And if he can be diverted to spend his time defending in a civil case, can't the president, who plays an awful lot of golf for someone who's too busy, uh, couldn't he be charged with criminal cases? I believe he could and should. Um, and so, yes, you're right. The Office of Legal Counsel could issue an opinion, and it would give again something you said. It gives the color of legitimacy to certain actions. So this is very scary. Um, very well, scary.
2: and we've seen this, you know. Um- We've seen this already. That the Office of Legal Counsel wrote an opinion that basically justified the whistleblower complaint about Trump's Ukraine call, not not flowing from the uh, Intelligence Community Inspector General to Congress, which is what the law says it was supposed to do. What happened was you had the Office of Legal Counsel come up with this, you know, mumbo jumbo. <laughs> Uh, that, so, you know, whatever. And it was just, it was a bunch of nonsense. Um, but basically what that meant is, and, you know, and in conclusion, this means that, you know, this, uh, this complaint doesn't need to go to Congress. And now, Congress didn't know. They didn't know that this, whistle- this complaint existed. They didn't know that the executive branch had made this determination. So they couldn't even challenge it. It was only because somehow some, you know, I think the inspector general told Congress, like I've been prevented from sending this, that, th- that then this blew up. So what, what I'm saying is there's a little bit of a legal black hole there where, you know, you can engage in sophistry. And when you're a lawyer and Joel knows this, you know, one my former law school dean, when incoming law students would come in, um, what he would say to them is never let your skill exceed your virtue, which means that when you become a lawyer, you will learn very clever tricks and various ways to, you know, um, you know, make the do, do the Jedi mind trick for people. And um, what you need to do is always have your moral compass and understand again who you're representing and what your what your goal is. But as a lawyer, you can justify pretty much anything. And if that's what's happening there, um, you know things could get buried or those could become justifications for allowing things to happen um, that we, I think, will eventually learn about. Those things always find a way, you know, into the light of day eventually, Um, but we may not know it at the time. And I, I do worry about that.
0: Yeah. I mean, it seems like Barr has plenty of skill, but uh, very little moral compass other than to um, defend Donald Trump. Um, But it's been quite a uh, worrisome uh, episode in terms of what Barr might do and um, how he's handled the Department of Justice. So I kind of want to close with some short rapid fire questions, um, hopefully more hopeful. So um, the first one is, which representative um, had the most effective line of questioning and bringing out the facts? So obviously you kind of mentioned um, swell, we had uh, uh, Jayapal. Um, Were there any um, ones that stood out most to you
2: negus um i mean i think all like i think it started out kind of rocky and were they going in order of seniority because i i mean definitely as the as they got to the more junior congress people you know frankly it just it got punchier um i think uh val demings yeah i believe had very powerful um questioning so you know i don't know that i could pick like any winner like they all had like you know, their strengths and stuff. Um, again, I think if, if they had more time and could be more coordinated and, and kind of almost like a relay race, like mm. passing the baton and picking <laughs> up from, you know, and, have, and being able to carry the momentum, I think it could have been super powerful. Um, but I think several of them did a really good job. And uh, Representative Jayapal, I mean, her, she was yeah. on fire. Yeah. Um, I think the women, you know, really brought the fire mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. for sure.
0: For sure, yeah. Um, the second question is, so if Vice President Biden were to, I guess, ask you to lead the DOJ, um, what would be your first step on day one to, I guess, restore credibility or at least um, kind of provide a newfound confidence in um, DOJ after what Barr has done?
2: Oh, my goodness. Um <laughs> would be the first thing I would do. Um... That's a hard question. And I, I feel like I thought about this, but I'm going blank. Joe, what would your answer be? That I, will help I, me, it's a
1: very hard question because mm-hmm. they've created such a black hole at the department and have um, done so much. I mean, I think what's really important is to establish the rules that you and I were probably trained on, which is that truth and justice are our goals it's not to go after a particular person. It's not to say I don't like uh, a particular industry, so I'm gonna bring antitrust cases against that industry, which is some of the testimony we also heard against Barr. And it's bringing back the career people and letting them know that they can make judgments. I never once felt that I had to bring a case or not bring a case based on politics. I was free to bring in witnesses to a grand jury, to listen to the evidence, and then to say, I believe, based on what I've heard, that a jury of peers of the defendant, beyond a reasonable doubt, will convict. Um, Now, in Watergate, I will say, we had an even higher standard before acting because you don't take on the president and his top aides without being more than, beyond reasonable doubt, sure that you will get a conviction. But I think that's what's missing right now, is that the staff, I think um, I have a friend who, whose daughter is now um, in the FBI. And it's very, morale is very low because yeah. they don't feel respected and they don't feel trusted and they don't feel they can take actions that are ethical. I'm ashamed because William Barr and I have the same law school alma mater. Uh, I was very proud of coming from Columbia Law School, and I still am, but somehow they failed in letting him get out without any appreciation of ethics and morals and It may be that the year I graduated, everybody was interested in working in public interests and civil rights were big and
2: um, I thought he went to George Washington law School I think he went to columbia undergrad
1: i Somehow, I just read, and I didn't think he had gone to Columbia, but I just heard somebody announce that he went to. Col- if he didn't go to Columbia, thank you for telling me that. Because
2: I'm- actually, I believe that he went to G- to GW Law School because um, I think some um, like 80 members of the law faculty at GW Law wrote a letter saying that he was a disgrace and needs to resign or we're, something. We're going like to find that. out right but, now. So we'll, we'll, Victor, you can fact yeah. check that. I'm yeah. sure that he's a Columbia <laughs> at GW William law. Says, that's it. for
1: you. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs>
0: well, you. don't
2: have to
0: carry
2: George, him. <laughs> George Washington
0: University Law School, Columbia University, Columbia University, George Washington University, in the Horace Mann School.
1: Okay, so he did go to George Washington Law School, and he went to Columbia University. That's what my phone just told me. So, yeah, that's what um, I think it is. That's. Thank you thank you, thank you. I am so relieved and so I can't tell you, thank you, Columbia Law School. Uh, I am very happy. Um, I was just interviewed because James Meredith and, and Victor, do uh-huh. you know who James Meredith is
0: yeah, I've heard of him, yes okay.
1: um, James Meredith was a classmate of mine. He had done something I think he was in the military uh, in between college and and law school, so he was older than most of the class, but um, I'm very proud that. You know, because I considered him a civil rights hero for what he did in integrating um, you know, school. And anyway, so they're doing a story about James Meredith. And I'd rather hear a story about James Meredith and be proud that he was in my class, as opposed to that I shared it with William Barr. So I'm happy to- And I don't have it. to.
2: <laughs> Thank you for telling me that, I'm yes, very yes. relieved.
0: Yes, um, and okay so our last question is um, I want to draw from your experience with kind of working with student teacher at Yale. Um, many of my peers I think are beginning to recognize the importance of civic engagement really speaking out on these issues um, but there's still this large chunk of the youth voting cohort that I think find it unnecessary to get involved and vote. Um, so I guess what might you say to young people who feel like their voice won't be heard or that you know this election isn't worth getting involved in?
2: Everything that happens in this election, uh, or like whoever gets elected will directly impact their lives probably more than anyone else. I mean, the, the oldest cohort, you know, are not long this earth, you know, but the people who are gonna live with, you know, climate change, civil rights issues, public corruption, all of those things um, are your generation. Uh, and the way that you make sure that your interests are represented is to go vote. Um, I also think that civic engagement is, you know, I think that part of the reason there's apathy about voting is that, you know, civic engagement isn't just something that you do, you know, once every four years. Um, it's about, you know, reading your newspaper, um, going to a town hall or debate, showing up at a protest, um, you know, joining uh, a civic organization um, in, in your area. Um, all these things, you know, giving to charity, uh, even, you know, paying your taxes, being a, being a good <laughs> citizen who, who um, you know, bel- who actually bel- understands that the things that you do, um, you know, that you should act for the, the collective well-being. Um, Alexis de Tocqueville in Democracy in America, one of the things that he marveled about in the United States was that he thought that Americans had something that he called self-interest well understood um, and he thought this was very unique and what he said is you know there's people definitely are ambitious and they're self-interested they, they will do things to maximize you know their their own position and and well but they will also do it in such a way that it lifts everybody else up also in other words they they don't come to it thinking of it as a zero-sum game right so that you know th- there's always a sense of Uh, general goodwill and a sense of of owing something more generally. Um, I I think that finally public service is the ultimate way to get inculcated into this kind and socialized into this kind of mindset, Um, even if you do it for a few years, um, working for the government, federal government, state government, local government, um is a great way to understand that there are people who really, you know, make things work. There are people who, you know, put away the bad guys, or people who are defending people in court and um, making the laws and and getting involved uh, in that way as well. Then you start to understand the importance of voting. Um, if it's just this one random thing that you have to take your you know day off to do, um, it doesn't feel as important as when you are completely engaged. Um, with your whole being, you know, um, in, in a lot of different aspects of your life.
0: Yeah, that's great advice. And um, one of my teachers um, in high school, uh, he coined this uh, hashtag called the civics lifestyle. So I guess just um, being able to yeah. have, do civics, like, it's a lifestyle. Um, but I mean, mm-hmm. thank you so much for joining us in this discussion. It was so wonderful. And we were so glad that uh, we, were, we were able to talk with you.
2: Thank Thank you so much. I'm I'm glad. I appreciate you ending it on a a little bit more of an upbeat upbeat note. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So thank you so much. It was great talking to you.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Enjoy yourself. We hope you listening also enjoy this episode. Be sure to follow us on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook, and send us suggestions, ideas for future topics, and speakers you would like to see via Jill, myself, or our website. Lastly, Intergenerational Politics is now on Apple Podcasts, so be sure to subscribe and rate our channel to support us. Thanks for listening, and see you on our next episode.